Please note, there's discussion of graphic violence in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. This is the first in a two-part series covering the crimes attributed to the Atlanta Ripper, a person or persons who targeted Black women in Atlanta, Georgia, for at least three years. This historical series begins in 1911, just five years after the so-called Atlanta Race Riots, a multi-day genocidal assault on Black Atlantans that included at least 25 murders, hundreds of assaults, arrests, arson, disarmings, and widespread destruction. Some historical sources used use outdated language that has been omitted where possible, but has occasionally been preserved in order to provide accurate quotes as read by modern voice actors. The Atlanta Ripper series was written and recorded in late 2019 and early 2020. Some details regarding Atlanta monuments may change. This is The Fall Line. South of the north, yet north-south, lies the city of a hundred hills, peering out from the shadows of the past into the promise of the future. I have seen her in the morning, when the first flush of day had half-roused her. She lay gray and still on the crimson soil of Georgia. From W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk. The City in a Forest, Terminus, Gate City, Marthasville, Thrasherville, Atlanta, of the Atlantic Railroad, the end of everything. The city seal is a phoenix. Resurgence or rise again, the motto. From the ashes. Everyone knows that Atlanta burned. But which city was destroyed and what was built in its place? A single street can be a multiverse, depending on who you ask or who's writing the history. In 1911, a peace monument was erected in Atlanta's largest park. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it was designed by a sculptor from New York and paid for by the old guard of the Gate City. That organization was, per its own historical website, established in the late 1850s as part of the Georgia militia, quote, mustered into service of the Confederate States of America to repel invasion and pledged to commemorate and preserve the virtues of the Old South. During Reconstruction, the Old Guard traveled on what they called a peaceful invasion of northern cities. The society describes it as a kind of goodwill tour, crossed with a show of post-war Southern strength, a brotherhood across borders. The old guard of the Gate City still exists today, at least as of 2015, and maintains its own website. They dedicated an entire webpage to the Reconciliation Sculpture, which still stands in Atlanta's Piedmont Park. The statue, which features an angel placing her hand on the musket of a Confederate soldier, was supposed to symbolize reconciliation between the North and the South. This gesture was meant to encourage Northern businesses and Northern money to come to the New South, which painted itself as reformed and ready for development. It was, and is, 
Revisionist History The city of Atlanta acknowledged as much after the statue was vandalized in 2017 as part of a larger protest movement against Confederate monuments throughout the Southeast. In many of our cities, laws prevent the removal of such statues. So, Atlanta decided to add new markers to the monument and to other Confederate statues, addressing what NBC terms the lens of lost cause mythology. The Augusta Chronicle reported that the new plaque, placed alongside the Peace Monument on August 2, 2019, reads in part, This monument should no longer stand as a memorial to white brotherhood. Rather, it should be seen as an artifact representing a shared history in which millions of Americans were denied civil and human rights. In 1911, when that statue was placed, Jim Crow law coiled around the South. As Smithsonian Magazine reports, that era saw the Daughters of the Confederacy raising money for monuments to memorialize battles, soldiers, generals. A bright white South imagined in marble laid over 300 years of chattel slavery. It was only five years after the Atlanta race massacre, and the city had, on the surface, moved on. Though the violence of 1906 no longer made headlines, the after-effects remained. Continual legislation to repress, confine, and restrict Black Atlantans. Tension everywhere. A fear of how Northerners might view Southern news and how it would affect investment dollars. A need to make the city seem safe and modern, the New South. In 1911, newspapers were full of reports that shared minute details of everyday life, with plenty of sensational journalism thrown in the mix. Though hundreds of stories were crammed into the pages of the Atlanta Georgian, the Constitution, the Daily Enterprise, it took more than a year, and multiple murders, for news of the so-called Atlanta Ripper to really break into the mainstream media. Crimes were covered, but not in any cohesive, big-picture kind of way. Names were left out, or streets, or sometimes deaths went totally unreported. The Confederate Peace Monument was bigger news. And by 1911, at least a dozen Black women had been killed left in alleys, side streets, fields, a creek. But it wasn't until a string of burglaries in the rich, white, North Atlanta sector caught the public's attention and Atlanta began to fear a crime wave that the murders in historically Black neighborhoods got bigger headlines. Then, the coverage finally drifted out of the city and into some national news reports. But by then, Atlanta was boiling over. Nineteen eleven may have been the first time a multi-murderer went unchecked in Atlanta, but it wouldn't be the last. Over sixty years later, our city would reel from another crisis: the Atlanta child murders. When you know about the Atlanta Ripper case, the details of the Atlanta child murders are almost hauntingly familiar. There were crimes committed over several years with little national attention or pressure until there were more than 20 graves spread out across the city. Though a suspect was tried and convicted for two of the Atlanta child murders, the victims' families, like their 1900s counterparts, 
were left with more questions than answers. And the child murders, though the most famous, weren't the last of the long-running, underreported murder series in our city. In fact, Atlanta has been home to some of the most significant homicide clusters in modern history. In season four of The Fall Line, we told you that 11 Alive News reported on the Murder Accountability Project's identification of, quote, more than 130 women strangled in the metro area. According to their investigation, quote, nearly 100 of those cases were reported as unsolved to the FBI. Women who died in the 1980s and 1990s at the hands of who experts believe to be at least two serial killers operating simultaneously in a single city. That happens more than the public realizes. Predators hunting the same population, overlapping circles of death of people who won't make the papers, and areas experiencing upheaval like LA during the crack cocaine crisis, Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina, Ohio and Long Island at various points in the opioid epidemic, Atlanta during Jim Crow, and Atlanta again during the child murders, and again in the apparent strangulation cluster in the late 1980s. Maybe here, it's never really stopped. Now, without Jack the Ripper, there would not be an Atlanta Ripper, not by that name anyway. So, to analyze how the Atlanta Ripper phenomenon was portrayed, we should begin with its predecessor, its namesake. In 1888, in London, England, Jack the Ripper is said to have killed five women in what is arguably the world's most well-known series of serial murders. The crimes have been painstakingly examined by more than a century's worth of amateur detectives. There are killers with higher victim counts who operated for years or decades and who remained uncaught. And yet, the story of Bloody Jack traveled far and fast, quickly seeping into the American consciousness. American journalists latched onto the sensational descriptions of the London murders and began interpreting America's violence through that lens. Because here, as there, the public was captivated. And captivation sells papers. When we met with Jeff Wells, the author of The Atlanta Ripper, we discussed how Jack the Ripper's mythos shaped the coverage of the Atlanta Ripper investigation. Jeff Wells is the academic dean of online learning for the Global Online College at Georgia Military College and professor of history. He wrote about the Atlanta Ripper as part of his scholarship. The case itself has been largely forgotten. So first, we wanted to know how he came upon the story. This student brought the article to me, and like always, I said I'd get around to it, which I didn't for a while, until I read Corinna Underwood from the History Press's book about murders and mysteries in Atlanta. And there was a small article in there about the Atlanta Ripper murders. And I said, oh, goodness, there's that epic. And so I took the article that the student had given, given me and started perusing it. And I was addicted. We have these databases at the college through our library system that at that time, I'm not sure if they still do, included the old Atlanta Journal and Atlanta Constitution archives, those old editions. 
So I started perusing through. I'd used those when I wrote my first book on the uh, train crash in McDonough of 1900. And there was so much there in those, those news archives. So as I began to dig, I uncovered lots and lots of stories from different wires about the Atlanta Ripper murders. And then, of course, it being called the Atlanta Ripper drove me insane because I have always been a true crime and conspiracy theory and mystery fanatic. And the biggest in the world, other than maybe Loch Ness and Bigfoot, of course, is Jack the Ripper. So with this phenomenon being similarly named, the pieces were all there for a perfect storm. So I knew that I would have to dig in and start looking at primary sources, which is extremely exciting for an academic, particularly an historian. And looking at uh, those primary sources began to give me at least direction when it came to a historical narrative. So what I started doing was building a timeline. How did the public interest in and knowledge of the Jack the Ripper case both inform the amount of media coverage in the Atlanta Ripper case and its tone? Jack the Ripper hung over this phenomenon like a pall. It was a thick cloud. And that's because Jack the Ripper in the history of true crime and in the history of mysteries and conspiracy theories and strange phenomenon is so impacting. <clears throat> now, I'll tell you this. To begin with, no one called these murders the Atlanta Ripper murders. That was a moniker that was assigned by the press. And they did that because of Jack the Ripper. And the reason that that was the case was a lot of the murders had a great likeness to the Jack the Ripper murders. The, the bashing, the slashing, the fact that these were women. And from what we can tell, although we have really no idea who the true, what the true identity of Jack the Ripper is, who this person was, um, there are some great suspects out there. They all tend to be white men. And the suspects match the, well, at least the, the color of the murder victims in that they were all white women. Whereas in the Atlanta Ripper murders, the best we can tell, we do have some eyewitnesses, and those were black men. And we know that the victims were all black females. So there were a lot of similarities. Eight, the early 1880s, so that's going to be about the time that you have the Jack the Ripper phenomenon. And this is, if you want to go back to the earliest murder that could have been part of this phenomenon, it was 1909. So roughly 30 years had passed. And in 30 years, we're in 2020, 30 years ago was 1990. And when you think about the things that happened in 1990, you're talking about Gulf War I. And a lot of us lived through that epic, and we can certainly remember that like it was yesterday. And then those students and those people who are alive today who were not alive then, they know people who lived through those that time frame, and they know people who were involved in that, soldiers, politicians, military personnel who might not have been active duty. So it's a very real phenomenon to them. It is, it's an event that is in, cached in their memory very clearly. So it had a great deal to do with the scope and sequence of, of these events, not only the name, but there are some who've read this and commented to me that maybe even the fiend, as he was called by the papers, was mimicking Jack the Ripper. That is, I can see that that could be a possibility. So it hung very heavily over these, these series of events. 
So Jack the Ripper likely killed five women. How many victims were attributed to the Atlanta Ripper? It depends on whom you ask and when you start counting. Most of the coverage of the possible Ripper activity dates back from 1911 and 1912, but there was an earlier series of deaths, as Jeff Wells said, dating to 1909, that should be examined. And on the outside, there are several more clusters between 1913 and the early 1920s. The news archives are incomplete. Some crimes weren't reported on when they were committed, or were only referenced when a trial began. Some victims weren't named at all. Luckily, local leaders of Atlanta's Black business community gathered their own victim list in 1911 as part of a demand for police action. Without that list, there are cases we'd not be able to connect to reports because journalists didn't include the victims' names. When the Ripper news coverage picked up in 1911 and 1912, reporters began applying that Ripper descriptor with broad strokes. Helpful for our research, but also harder to decide whether a crime was actually linked or if a snappy headline was added to sell papers. Incomplete record of police activity? It further complicates things. There were at least 16 victims who are generally discussed as part of the Atlanta Ripper series, but higher estimates are in the 20s. Our research assistant flagged 32 possible cases in archival news coverage. Ones where the Ripper descriptor was used, or the deaths that were later lumped into that series occurred. For now, we'll begin with the deaths of 1911. In an Atlanta that, though it bears little resemblance to our city today, was full of familiar neighborhoods and streets. The names dotting 1911 newspapers will be recognizable to modern residents. Fourth Ward, Summer Hill, Auburn Avenue, Buckhead. According to Jeff Wells, there was actually a convict camped at Virginia Avenue, which is a street now home to one of the metro's wealthiest neighborhoods, Virginia Highlands. Atlanta's white population lived mostly in the north and northwest portions of town. According to Richard Bayer, author of Race in the Shaping of 20th Century Atlanta, quote, Black neighborhoods formed both throughout the city and beyond its limits in the eastern, southern, and western areas bordering downtown near railroad tracks and industrial sections, on cheap land in the valleys and bottoms, at servants' quarters, on the primarily white north side, and near the black colleges on the south and west sides, end quote. Post-Civil War, Atlanta's business district, especially its industries, grew and the population with them. Just before the Great Migration, Atlanta's population was at an all-time high. Roughly 90,000 people lived in the city, more than a third of whom were African-American. In 1911, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois had just finished up a 13-year appointment at Atlanta University, where, according to the New Georgia Encyclopedia, he'd established the sociology program. That school would eventually merge with Clark College to become Clark Atlanta University. Meanwhile, Atlanta Baptist Seminary was two years from its reincarnation as Morehouse College. On Auburn Avenue, Black-owned businesses like the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, Standard Life Insurance, and Citizens Trust Bank boomed. Per the New Georgia Encyclopedia, quote, as restrictive Jim Crow legislation was codified into law, 
the city's African-American population became confined to the area between downtown and Atlanta University and to the neighborhoods on the city's east side, known today as the Old Fourth Ward. It was during this period that Auburn Avenue first achieved prominence as a commercial corridor. End quote. Atlanta had a streetcar, and that streetcar line was vital to both the business districts and to the city's general growth. According to historians.org, the Atlanta streetcar system was the first in the nation to be segregated in 1891. That legislation was fought with citizen-organized transportation strikes, much like the Montgomery bus strikes in later years, but they were more difficult to sustain. There weren't carpools to arrange so that people could still get to work. Still, Black Atlantans protested the segregation of the streetcar, right up until the Atlanta race massacre of 1906. The city's railroad tracks, ubiquitous, the biggest business, they crisscrossed neighborhoods, dividing each street again and again. Fields and undeveloped land pushed up against road construction and expansive new builds. For much of Atlanta, work was the rule, not the exception. And employment for women, especially, specifically, Black women, was often found in domestic service. Laundry, housekeeping, cooking, whether in businesses or in private homes. Those jobs meant walking to work early and leaving work late. Walking both ways in the dark. Atlanta had at least 800 electric streetlights by 1900, but they weren't evenly distributed in all neighborhoods, especially outside of the business district. According to the Georgia Department of Transportation, the consolidation of Atlanta's various streetcar lines meant that most areas were serviced. And the streetcar seems to have run, at least in certain periods, 24 hours a day. But not everyone could take it. The cost could be prohibitive, as could be the lack of space, especially after segregation. And there were areas that still were not well served. For hundreds of women, especially Black women, who therefore walked to and from work each day, a commute on foot could be dangerous. In 1961, 50 years after the events in this series, then-Atlanta Mayor William Hartsfield discussed the lack of basic amenities and city services in early and mid-20th century Black communities. He said that many neighborhoods were where, quote, Light stop, streets, sidewalks stopped. Well into the 20th century, there were neighborhoods in Atlanta without water service, without garbage collection, without reasonable access to the police or emergency services, without the streetlights that would give some warning that someone was approaching from behind. We discussed these dangers with historian Jeff Wells. The fact that Atlanta was divided not only along racial lines, but also socioeconomic lines has a lot to do with this. Now, I would never go so far as to say that they caused the Atlanta Ripper murders, but they certainly made the perpetrators work easier. And the fact that their public transportation was non-existent in these neighborhoods, um, so a lot of these women had to be on the streets walking to and from wherever they were going. And as you can see from the narrative, a lot of these young women were going to and from work. Well, if there's no public transportation and there's no street lamps and there's no, no measure of safety like what we would expect in neighborhoods of Atlanta today in those communities, 
then it would be very easy for a predator to hunt down his prey. And I hate to use those terms for humans, but that's exactly what was going on. Um, It gave the predator a much easier pathway to travel. And there it is, victimology. All of the victims of the Atlanta Ripper crimes were Black women, most young, most working in service. Nearly all were walking to or from home when they died. The few women who survived the attacks described a slim, tall, well-dressed man, who they also described as Black, who either attacked them from behind or cornered them at alleys or in side streets. As we've discussed in several of our episodes, including our series on Shakimia Pate, profilers as a rule assume that predators are of the same race as their victims. Though this pattern of victim selection doesn't always hold true, just look at Samuel Little, it's where many profiles start. Part of that assumption is based on the segregation that existed and still exists in communities and neighborhoods that are often racially homogenous. That can serve as camouflage for a killer, more apt to pick a hunting ground where he can blend in. In 1911, many of Atlanta's Black neighborhoods ring the industrial and business districts, so a well-dressed man could be at home at either, slipping from a residential street onto Auburn Avenue without notice. But even with a profile that narrows the victim pool, the sheer scope of these crimes can make narrowing down a single suspect impossible. Considering the distance between some of the attacks and the differences in the murder weapons and the methods in others, it's fair to assume that some of them fell outside the Ripper's purview. And that's if there actually was a single, solitary Ripper in the first place. That's the trouble with historical research. Often, there are no police files or they're scattered. That's the problem Jeff Wells ran into when he tried to get the actual documents. We relied on a number of articles, census records, and announcements that ran during the murders, as have other scholars who've covered the Ripper. Jeff Wells was able to incorporate minutes from various city meetings, including the council, but nowhere, anywhere, is there a police investigator's direct record, whom he counted in as a possible Ripper victim, whom he counted out, or why. In part two of this series, we'll delve into possible suspects and whether multiple killers, some copycats, or opportunists might have been operating at the same time. And as an aside, there's one possibility that we haven't seen discussed, and that's whether all of the crimes were, as a profiler might assume, actually intraracial. Could some of the murders have been hate crimes perpetrated on Atlanta's Black population by its white ones? With leadership committed to Jim Crow segregation and, as Wells notes in his book, quote, white supremacist policies, hate crimes had gone unpunished before and would go after. The eyewitness reports of the Atlanta Ripper, the suspects actually seen by witnesses, don't necessarily bear out a theory of race-based hate crime. But then again, there were very few witnesses and even fewer women who escaped to tell their stories. So that pool is small and doesn't cover all of the murders. Whether or not the theory holds any water, we can't say. But based on newspaper records, it was never explored or even discussed in the press. But it's a discussion that Atlanta has had or perhaps has avoided having at other times in our history. 
During the Atlanta child murders, there was talk that the Ku Klux Klan might have been involved in at least some of the victims' deaths. Spin Magazine conducted a multi-year investigation into those allegations. And as recently as December of 2019, local investigative reporter Naima Abdullahi has continued to cover that possible connection. Per her reporting, quote, In 1986, Eleven Alive obtained exclusive documents from a secret investigation into a deadly group of racist murderers, the Ku Klux Klan. Those documents are called the 8100 file. The file was destroyed after it was closed, which came after several Klansmen passed polygraphs. This angle was especially explored in regard to the death of one child, Luby Jeter. According to some outlets, Jeter bumped a Klansman's vehicle with his go-kart. A confidential informant who says he was undercover in the Klan at the time of the Atlanta child murders, he approached Eleven Alive to offer more context on this and other crimes. He remembers there being discussion of Jeter, who was found dead shortly after the incident, and of other children. When the murders were discussed, there was a general sentiment among the Klan that young black men and boys would be the best victims, because, as the source told Abdullahi, quote, the Klan wasn't after girls. They were after males, because males could cause a lot of problems when they got big, when they growed up. He also told her that he'd heard of plans to kill at least one child. This is just a summary of Abdullahi's coverage. You should definitely read it for yourself. We'll link some of her articles in the show notes. But if in 1979, city officials might have been worried about a race riot, what about in 1911, so soon after the 1906 massacre? And there's another similarity between the Atlanta child murders and the Ripper crimes. It's clear that there was worry over the Atlanta police's ability and their motivation to solve the many homicides. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Per the Atlanta Constitution Archives, in 1911 and 1912, local leaders in the Black community petitioned the city to employ Black detectives. This was a need that became more apparent as woman after woman died, bleeding out in ditches, in fields, in the streets. Heads bashed, throats cut, shot, found floating in the creek. Even more gruesome deaths were to come. In the 1910s, there was little access to investigative support. And when it came, the police were unfamiliar with many areas, with residents, with the realities of daily life outside of white neighborhoods. Though the canonical murders begin in 1911, 
we want to take you back just a little earlier to another cluster, mostly taking place in 1909 and 1910. These deaths shared a set of similarities, not with later crimes, but with each other. Black women who died from gunshot wounds. According to Wells, at least some of these crimes got no media attention at all, not until later when the Atlanta Ripper was used retroactively to sell newspapers. Our research assistant identified the first of the 1909 victims as a woman named Della Reed, who was found, quote, in a trash pile. We then found a single previous reference to Della when she and another professional laundress were arraigned for, per the Atlanta Constitution, leaving stagnant water in a wash basin. This reportedly led to, quote, wiggle tails, or what historical dictionaries tell us are mosquito larvae, apparently a punishable offense. Two years later, Della was dead, and that wasn't worth the inch or so of column that the wash basin story had gotten. Atlanta laundry work has an interesting history. Per the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, in 1880s Atlanta, half of Atlanta's Black workforce was female, and, quote, nearly all, 98%, were household workers. The AFL-CIO also writes that, quote, in the 1880s, more Black women worked as laundresses than in any other type of domestic work. The city had more laundresses than male common laborers, end quote. The work was difficult, time-consuming, and never-ending, because, as the AFL-CIO points out, manufacturing development led to more readily available clothing. In the North, that laundry was often sent out to large wash houses, but in the South, individuals did the work, and those individuals were nearly all Black women, independently employed, small business owners. These women worked mostly out of their own homes, six days a week. Rates were difficult to raise, and per the AFL-CIO, laundresses had to take on more clients to make more money, which could mean working and delivering clothes late into the night. A bit of forgotten Atlanta history is that in 1881, the laundresses went on strike, demanding higher rates across the board and a uniform rate, as an early union called the Washing Society. Per the AJC, they timed the strike to line up with a cotton exposition, which would draw thousands of white businessmen to the state. It's not so strange that laundresses were at the forefront of our first labor strike. As Rosalind Bentley of the AJC writes, quote, Laundry women had more independence and worked in communal settings where there was more privacy and strength in numbers. Bentley explains that, quote, what started as a group of 24 laundresses swelled to more than 3,000 in three weeks. In an archival Atlanta Constitution article, we found a manifesto published that included the line, quote, we mean business this week or no washing. So the tone of that 1907 article criticizing Della and the other laundress for their stagnant tubs, it's almost gleeful. It contains echoes of the punitive tone set by city leaders after the strike. In Atlanta, many Black women work to support or help support their families. And the work itself became part of the poisonous narrative that they were women out on the streets who might just deserve what happened to them. So, in 1909, on April 5th, when Della Reed was found in a trash pile near Rankin Street in the Fourth Ward, 
There was nary a ripple. Her death came too early for notice as part of the Ripper phenomenon, though the, quote, head-bashing would become part of the methodology associated with those crimes. Later that same year, another woman, unidentified in the original article that mentioned her death, was found floating in Peachtree Creek. According to our research, her throat had been slashed. In his book, The Atlanta Ripper, Jeff Wells wrote that, quote, as 1910 rolled in, it seemed that Black women were being murdered on the streets of Atlanta at a rate of one per month. He goes on to list a number of women who died from gunshot wounds. The murders falling under the approximate Ripper timeline, 1911 to early 1914, did not generally involve guns, and the news coverage in 1909 and 1910 didn't speculate as to a single predator. But, according to Wells, these deaths some of which remained unsolved, heightened community tension. By the time the papers took notice of the slashings they'd call Ripper murders, Atlanta's Black community had been in crisis for two years. So, back to 1911, where we began, the same year as that Confederate peace monument was dedicated. At that time, newspapers printed regular society announcements. Miss So-and-so engaged. Mr. So-and-so returned to town after a long illness. Those kinds of reports got plenty of column space. It wasn't until July of 1911 that a petition, written by African-American religious and business leaders, would circulate a very different list of names, of Black women who've been murdered since 1909. It is in this list that one can begin to see a pattern, where, at a certain point in the timeline, a unifying manner of death connects some of the cases. The first woman to die in what would be the Ripper's signature, quote, throat slashed, head bashed, was found in late October of 1910. She went unnamed in the press, but based on the dates provided in the petition, which was printed in the Atlanta Constitution, we think she was probably a woman named Maggie Brooks. Unlike most of the other cases that the clergy included, Maggie's cause of death is not listed just that she died, quote, on Hill Street near West Point in the Beltline. But the dates track. Up until October of 1910, all the other deaths on the petition were listed as beatings or shootings. After Maggie Brooks, though, things changed. If those gun deaths had continued, would they have struck the press as reportable? Based on some of the headlines in later years, we think not. In our research, we came across an article listing Atlanta's 1912 gun-related homicides. In the entire piece, there is approximately half a sentence that notes that five of the victims were Black women. News coverage reveals that, by 1912, local law enforcement had apparently retroactively decided that those crimes might fit into the Atlanta Ripper case. Without that bit of tantalizing material, it's unlikely the women would have been mentioned at all. Even with a serial killer or killers on the loose, articles about the women's murders tended to be short. Column length ran narrower than the ads in the one-panel cartoons on either side of them. Nearly all the deaths following Maggie Brooks were similar in method. February 3rd, Lucinda McNeil, throat cut. May 8th, Rosa Rivers, shot. May 29th, Mary Walker, throat cut. June 15th, Addie Watts, throat cut. June 27th, Lizzie Watkins, throat cut. July 2nd, Lena Sharp, throat cut. July 10th, Sadie Hollis, throat cut. 
Their list, which stretched back to the gunshot victims of 1909, included 17 women. Of the 17, seven had their throats cut, with nearly all of those deaths occurring in close succession and mostly falling on a Saturday. 30 years on, everyone at that time remembered stories of Jack the Ripper slinking through the poorest areas of London, leaving a trail of death through Whitechapel, preying on women who worked the streets. And so, in Atlanta, the press were eager to make the same leap, an American Ripper coming after other women at a different kind of margin. Many of the women were surprised in the street, near or after dark, and bashed in the head from behind. Then they were dragged some distance away, and their throats were slashed. In a few instances, there was mutilation too. We'll discuss that in future episodes. That's when headlines took on a tone of horrified anticipation. Unknown killer slays his seventh. Ripper is busy in Atlanta again. Officers hunt for Jack the Ripper. But the police didn't know who to look for. Not until after the seventh murder, when, finally, an intended victim escaped. Though the city was slow to take action, a few civic measures were taken in response to concern with Atlanta crime. According to Jeff Wells, one of the civic improvements that came, even as Jim Crow law blanketed the city, was the formation of a city-recognized committee in Atlanta's Black community. One leader of note, and someone you'll be hearing from again in this series, was the Reverend Henry Hugh Proctor, a doctor of divinity who built Atlanta's first congregational church. Though he was no longer giving regular sermons in 1911, Reverend Proctor was viewed as one of the most powerful leaders in Atlanta. Wells writes that, quote, Proctor called together 1,500 members of the Black community, the Movers and the Shakers, to be part of the Colored Cooperative Civic League, a parallel organization to Charles Hopkins' Atlanta Civic League. The CCCL focused on the improvement of life for all Atlanta, but specifically Black Atlantans, who were woefully underserved by most civic action. As 1911 wore on and the murders continued, the CCCL was instrumental in garnering reward funds, first from elite businessmen on Auburn Avenue, like L.L. Lee's funeral home, eventually from the city itself and the state, though that took many more months than it should have. Eventually, per the Constitution, a $250 reward was offered for the apprehension of the Ripper, which is, as far as we've been able to find, one of the first rewards offered in crimes exclusively affecting Black Atlantans. There were other factors at play. As mentioned early in this episode, in 1911, there was a crime wave sweeping over a different sector of Atlanta, the wealthy white one. A series of high-stakes robberies in private homes caused quite a stir and some serious critique of the police force. In this July 12, 1911 Constitution article, the uncredited author wrote a lengthy article on the subject, of which a voice actor reads excerpts here. Neither Jack the Ripper on one hand, nor the gang of thieves on the other, has let up for one week in their terrorizing crimes. Atlanta sleuth, so far from capturing the cutthroat murderer, so far from obtaining even a clue to lead to the arrest of any one of the thieves, have not even succeeded in making an arrest of anyone who even remotely might be suspected of having taken part in the crimes. 
The police department has nothing to say in explanation of its inability thus far to cope with the situation, further than its simple declaration that it's doing its best. All are asking, something be done. Something more than is apparently being done now. They are asking for something that will be effective. That summer of 1911, there were a number of Atlantans who took the police to account, especially after the Reverend Proctor began speaking out publicly about the crimes and began to organize the leaders of Atlanta's Black community to address the issue. The petition published in 1911 was not the first or the last call to action, but it's the clearest account of the crisis. The Ripper Angle, the slashings, and the North End robberies, together they may have finally brought attention to the crisis, but public concern would not be enough to solve these crimes. Next time on The Fall Line, we continue the story of the Atlanta Ripper, delving into the stories of victims, suspects, of copycat crimes, and of possible ties to murders in other cities, and Atlanta's response to the crimes, and why now they've all but been forgotten. Was the Atlanta Ripper case ever solved, in that the right suspect was arrested? And if so, why wasn't he stopped? We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken time out to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. The chief researcher for this series was Shannon Geary, who spent last summer immersed in the Atlanta News Archives, and she did an amazing job. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Special thanks to Dr. Jeff Wells and to Dion Clark of the Sage Podcast for reading the quotes at the opening of each of these episodes. You can hear more from Dion on the Sage Podcast, which is, quote, devoted to critical conversations on literature by and about Black women. The first episode, which recently dropped, features a discussion of Toni Morrison's Beloved with guest Anastasia Lawson of Georgia State University. Future episodes will include literary works on or by Black women in the U.S. and Global Souths. Voice acting for this episode was provided by J.V. Hampton Van Sant. J.V. is a writer, podcaster, and voice actor based out of Western Massachusetts. You can hear their voice on Crime and Color, Wannabe Film Buffs, and Red Wing, the audio drama. You can hire them on voice123.com. Mm-hmm.